0: Hey listeners, I just wanted to give you a heads up that there's a little more swearing than usual in this week's episode, but this is working, so it's really creative swearing. Okay, on with the show. You
1: novelists with your, with your, with your God's eye view <laughs> to just tell us what people are thinking? Theatre is so stupid, not only do I just have dialogue... I then have to give that dialogue to a different human. Right. Jesus Christ. It's an art form built on trust.
0: It's terrible. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas.
2: And I am your other host, Isaac Butler.
0: Isaac, whose refreshingly frank and undeniably satirical opinion did we hear at the top of the show?
2: What a good way of describing it. (laughs) That was the voice of the very talented and incredibly funny and incredibly smart playwright Antoinette Chinoye Wandu. Her play Passover is about to open on Broadway. It's in part a reworking of Waiting for Godot that tells the story of two young black men who are trying to get off their street corner and the various problems, uh, both realistic and not, that they (laughs) face as they do so.
0: Wow. I confess that I have become aware of Antoinette's work only recently because Passover is going to be the first play to open on Broadway since everything was interrupted by the pandemic. And I've already heard your conversation with her, it was fascinating. But I'm glad to have a chance to ask you about some of the things and the people that you got into. So are you ready to decode some theater talk for us?
2: Yes, yes. You have to imagine you've sent away the requisite number of box
0: tops and
2: (laughs) uh, I am your decoder ring. I have arrived. Excellent. Put me to use.
0: All right. I've never seen one, so I can't further the analogy, but okay. First, Antoinette is going to mention some names. Who are those people and what do we need to know about them?
2: Okay, so I assume you're talking about Donya Taymor and John Michael Hill here. So Donya Tamor is the director of Passover. She's been with the show for a very uh, long time and seen it through many different incarnations. And uh, John Michael Hill is an actor who has played one of the two leading roles in most of those versions. Uh, they're both a, a very talented artist. This is Donya Taymor's Broadway debut. Um, John Michael Hill is familiar to some Broadway audiences who would have seen him a few years back in Tracy Letts' play, Superior Donuts. Um, He's also like a big deal in Chicago. Mm. And my hope is that this show will help make his reputation uh, even more in New York because he's really wonderful to watch.
0: So you also get into the different versions of the play that's currently in previews on Broadway. And whereas like a writer of novels might get feedback by, say, emailing a document to some friends, playwrights, the only way they can really get a full response to their work is to mount a production so different versions means different productions what do listeners need to know about passover's production history
2: Oh boy, yeah, you uh, you have really hit a problem nail right on the head there, <laughs> which is that you know theater requires an audience, and so if you want to test out some material, you actually have to do it. And yeah. so, like many new plays, Passover has had many different readings, workshops, productions, etc. Over the years, uh, as you'll hear in the interview, it started as a ten-minute play, mm-hmm. and it's now a full-length work. So, uh, but the three big productions and the ones we're kind of circling around and talking about in this conversation are a version at the Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, a subsequent production off-Broadway at LCT3, which is the new play theater that's run by Lincoln Center, and this new one on Broadway. And the play evolved over the course of those three productions. So the play has four characters. There's the two young Black men named Moses and Kitch, who are the main characters in the show, and, and most of the play is about them. But their space is intruded upon by two white characters, one named Mister and one named Ossifer. In the Chicago production mr and ossifer were played by two different actors one actor played each role Um, since then they've actually been combined into one part so it's one actor who doubles and plays both characters which sort of draws more thematic resonances between them there's been a new ending put into the play for broadway there's been tons of little tweaks throughout so so we're not talking about minor differences it's actually a, a pretty big changes
0: wow And there's mention of a Spike Lee movie. Where does that fit in?
2: Yes. Spike Lee captured the Steppenwolf production for Amazon Prime. You could actually go stream it right now. It's quite good. Uh, It's a quite good film. uh, And Spike Lee actually works very hard to make it feel cinematic. Um, So, for example, there's a Foley editor who worked on it, who put in sound effects so you can hear all the footsteps and stuff, which you normally can't in a play. So it really sounds and, and feels cinematic.
0: Interesting. So I can't wait to hear this great conversation with Antoinette Chinoye Wandu. But before we do, I also want to mention that Slate Plus members will hear a little something extra from your conversation. What will they hear?
2: Yes, it's actually one of my favorite parts of our interview. So we talk about how to take care of yourself so that you can make your creative work. And Antoinette and I have a, I would say more personal than I usually get on this show, conversation about how therapy has affected both of our work as writers.
0: Wow, that sounds really interesting and important. Fortunately, it's very easy to subscribe to Slate Plus. You can get exclusive members-only content, zero ads on any Slate podcast, full access to articles on Slate.com without hitting a paywall, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. Okay, let's hear Isis' conversation with Antoinette Chinoyewandu.
2: This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Thank you for
1: having me.
2: I know that we're actually quite lucky to get this recording session even scheduled because you are extremely busy preparing uh, your play, Passover, which is currently in previews and will open on Broadway in September. Um, For our listeners who might not know the show, what is Passover? Passover is
1: a 90-minute play about two young Black men set in the modern day who are Spiritually and emotionally, descendants of Beckett's tramps, Didi and Gogo. And also, they are descendants of enslaved Black Americans from the antebellum South. And if we go even further back, they are descendants of the children of Israel from the biblical Exodus story. And so, they have all of that DNA very present in their lives. And the play is a story of their friendship and a story of their love relationship and bond and growth that helps them overcome two sides of patriarchal heteronormative white oppression
2: and do you remember the kind of origin story of the play was there a moment where we were like i'm going to do this and the play is going to be this or did it grow out of something else like like where did the play begin for you
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like with a play this monumental in my career, it's not one origin story, but like a breadcrumb of origin stories. Mm -hmm. Like I've went back and read every major draft of the play for the first time since writing them.
2: Oh, wow. Wow. How early was the earliest one? Uh, 2014. Oh, amazing. Amazing.
1: It was a 10 minute in 2014.
2: And how did you know? Or what led you to think like, oh, this 10 minute play, there, there's something here that needs more time. It needs to be a longer, bigger thing.
1: That's not my process.
2: I never think about the art object itself.
1: Mm. It was that I, I knew I needed to write about what I was feeling surrounding Trayvon Martin's death. Mm. And the, my relationship with my work is that I think of them like big pots, and I've got a lot of big pots in the storeroom of my mind. And I go into the world and, I'm, and I gather the ingredients that I need to put into all my pots. And so at that point, it was like, I know I need to write about this, but I'm also like feeling kind of lazy because I know I have a lot of pots out there because I had just been to grad school. So it's like, let me go back in what I already have and see if there's something I can jumpstart and put these feelings into. Hmm. Let's start with that circumstance and start writing monologues into these people.
2: So that was sort of the uh, uh, one of the first steps of kind of, was, was creating monologues for the characters?
1: Yeah, yeah, I always start with monologues, just figuring out, okay, who this person is and what do they think and what are they saying? And the 10-minute play was set in the Antebellum South and it was essentially two black men with a dead body who need to get this body from a place where they are slaves but safe to a place where they will be perhaps free or mistaken for free but not safe, but nothing happened in it. And that was one of the first, I was like, oh shit, nothing's happening in this. Why don't I make it funny? Like, okay, nothing should really happen. Then you just let people talk.
2: And is that sort of what led you to, not that nothing happens in Waiting for Godot, because actually a lot happens in Waiting for Godot, but is that sort of how Waiting for Godot entered into the picture?
1: I mean, in the same way that like Beckett entered my life, like I didn't ask him, he just sort of came charging in. Right. I don't know. I just feel like sometimes when people talk about the creative process, they talk about it as though they're in control of it. Right. Totally. I fell in love with Beckett when I was in college. And I know that when I was writing this play, Beckett kept coming up mm. and I and, and Beckett and I hadn't been in community since I got out of college. And then it was just like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm sitting there reading the shorts again. I'm like sitting there doing the, You know, I'm thinking, and I'm like, what the fuck am I thinking about? I'm trying to do this. Like, I'm trying to like write my black slavery play. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm sitting there doing it and it's like, okay, here's the list of shit I should be reading. I gotta like, you know, remind myself about the Civil War. Ooh, that's fun. But then every time I let myself go, I'm over here with Beckett.
2: When I was in graduate school for writing, my thesis mostly grew out of the fact that every time I sat down to write something, I wound up writing this other thing that I was trying not to write. Like I was really actually actively trying not to write it. And then eventually the end of my first year of of graduate school, because you have to figure out your thesis very quickly. I was like, uh, well, I can't escape this thing I'm trying not to write. So I should just go write that thing.
1: Exactly. And then you have to have that fulcrum moment where you're like, okay, this is, and this is one of my biggest creative mantras, which -hmm. is like... The seed of your solution lives inside of your problem.
2: Yeah, I imagine. I mean, you know, do you have projects that you've abandoned or things that you're like, oh, I oh, yeah, actually have t- reached the dead end t- t- with t- this?
1: If I, I mean, if I had been raised in a suburb and lived in one house my entire life and had enough food to eat and enough money from the time I was zero to 18, I would have written, I'd say, a dozen masterpieces right now because I'm an idea factory. I pity people who do not have ideas. All I have are ideas, but the discipline and the like hope and, and certainty that the work I put into the world will be received well received and the like sense of self that like everything I put into the world is valuable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Then like, I would have fucking been uh, one of your faves already, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm not, I have to deal with my fucking trauma. I have to deal with this fucking country. I have to deal with fucking, you know, class, race, gender, sexuality, blah, blah, blah. blah. So, okay, here we are. I'm emerging and I'm also really fucking up.
2: How do you kind of reckon with all that stuff when when you're actually, you know, sitting down to write, when you have the blank page, you know, you're still living in America and its particular mm-hmm. reality, its particular present, its particular, the horrors mm-hmm. of its history, but you've also like, you got to write a play, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, do you find ways to kind of channel that? Are there rituals you do to sort of get into the writing headspace or how does that stuff affect you in a kind of day-to-day writing way?
1: You know, that's interesting. I think that question sort of dovetails for me into sort of my renewed commitment to deep self-care. Mm-hmm. So I believe that like from the very beginning of my career or my journey as an artist, whatever the career is, my journey as an artist until about shit, I would say the pandemic, mm. there was some part of my process, less and less and less, but there was some part of my process that could be likened to an actor's process if they were method, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like, if I'm writing about it, I got to feel it. I got to go through it. And so you just know that writing becomes this slugfest with your own trauma. Yeah, totally. And it was like, okay, that's the that's the gig. Like that's fuck it, that's the gig. And then I would say, like the back half of like, you know, the 20 teens, I started going to therapy and getting them um, the right medication and understanding my own history and like reclaiming my writing time for myself. You know, doing my morning pages for me, like reclaiming my love of just the craft before all the fucking capitalism and career and resumes came on. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, remember when you used to just write to like write?
2: Right, not because there's an award.
1: Award, money, <laughs> yeah. spite. Totally. You know what I mean? Competition. Mm-hmm. Remember when you used to just like be a kid and just write some shit? Like, okay, do that. Plus the other self-care comes in. And it was like, oh, I don't want to bleed from my work anymore. Yeah, totally. Like I can fully go do something else.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, theater, playwriting, you have such a restricted number of tools, right? In that you can't like... Then he thought about his childhood. You know, you can't do those. Moves, yeah, you can't write a novel bit. out of that shit. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You have Yeah, you
1: novelists with your with your with your God's eye view <laughs> to just tell us what people are thinking.
2: I know. Yeah. You have you have yeah, just no, spoken language, right? Theater is so right?
1: stupid. <laughs> theater is so stupid. Not only do I just have dialogue, I then have to give that dialogue to a different human. Right. And the only way you're going to see my art is this other meat bag has to say it. Jesus Christ. It's an art form built on trust. Yeah. It's, 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 it's terrible. It's <laughs> terrible. It's yeah. Ter- it, Don't do this.
2: That's that's the lesson of today's episode of Working is do not yeah, go into the theater. Yeah, yeah.
1: If you want to be an artist, look, sit in your fucking house and write a novel. It's so great. You get to make the whole world. You get to make the dialogue. You get to be everybody.
2: I'm interested, though, because, you know, like in terms of how much storytelling and character development pressure there is on every line in a play you know and i'm thinking about this because passover's is, is very yes. economical it's structurally tight <laughs> i mean you know the thank you. the <laughs> thank you yes you uh, the the spike lee film is like 75 minutes including I credits i know and i'm just wondering about how you develop that kind of pressurized thing In your dialogue, the playwrights do so well where like every word has to do like six different things and also someone has to be able to say it in a way that sounds like something a human being would say. And I'm just curious about how you crack that, how you figured that out, you know, over, over the years that you've been writing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the first answer is just time. Hmm. And that's the worst answer because nobody wants to wait. The play right now, I just said to Danya, and again, I just have to say quickly, I'm not saying go write a novel. I'm being completely sarcastic. I knew yeah. I was being sarcastic, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I love my cast so much. I just want to say I'm working with the best people. I love Donya. I love John. I love Namira and I love Gabe and I love everybody else. But those are the best. How did I crack it? OK, so. One of the things I knew intuitively and very quickly, and it's like you you find out certain truths about the world and then you hold on to them for dear life. And one of them was I I knew was like, these motherfuckers ain't got semicolons. They ain't got a house, they ain't got this, they ain't got this. And then I'm starting to look at the page and I'm like, oh, let's get fun. Mm. I start taking away their punctuation. No, no, no. Oh, this is poetry. Okay. Mm. If there's a punctuation mark, it needs to fight to get in. And that was hard for me because in eighth grade, I was named the Grammar Queen by Miss Dunn at Brentwood Private School.
2: And punctuation is such a way that playwrights indicate rhythm to actors.
1: Of course. So at the very beginning of the project, when I say, oh, these two motherfuckers don't have anything, what I'm really saying is I am relinquishing control and I have to have actors who know how to act the way that jazz musicians know how to improv. If you see the play, I have never seen John, Namir, and Gabe give the same performance. Mm. Because one night, it's a question, and another night, it's a statement. Right. Because it's jazz.
2: Right. And for listeners who may not be aware of this, you know, in theater, the conventional way you approach a performance is to, quote-unquote, freeze it, right? is So that, that while the play appears spontaneous... In many ways, the actors right. are delivering the lines identically night after night after night. It's a, it, The spontaneity is a kind of magic trick we do, right, for audiences. And what you're right. saying is actually it, it's doing something completely different, which is the actors are saying the same lines every night, but the interpretation and how they play off each other is in no way fixed.
1: Well, the bones of the play
2: mm-hmm. and
1: the story that we are telling is currently maturing in a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. So we are in a pressure cooker situation right now that I have created because now that I've worked in TV, I know that this is what I like. So right now, yes, the text is locked. Today's the sixth. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow on the seventh, I unlock it for me. huh. On the 10th, it'll become unlocked for Dania. I'll give it to Danya. She'll read it. We'll talk about it mm-hmm. and then we'll send it to the actors. And at this point, We're in a place where I I told them last night, nothing new. The play is a vault. So if any lines of dialogue or actions or gestures are being added to what we have, we have to find them from within the play.
0: We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Antoinette Chinoye-Wandu. One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems. Whether it's a question about working with collaborators, how to move from initial idea to finished product, anything at all, send them to us at working@slate.com, at or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. We have one of those questions later in the episode. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Antoinette Chinoye-Wandu.
2: One of the things I definitely want to talk about is the preview process, right? Because I don't don't think a lot of, you know, as we call them, civilians, people aren't habitual theater goers, may not actually be familiar with the preview process and how essential it is. Teach them, Isaac. Teach (laughs) them. Well, just that, you know, we have this period before a play opens, but where it's performed by audiences and the union will allow you to continue to make changes and continue to rehearse yes. the play even though you have a paying audience yes. and there's a point where you can't do that anymore the director is not yes. allowed to give notes so the, the way actors, that
1: i like to describe you know. it to my family it's like okay we all know a little bit about hollywood right right and we all know that there are these private screenings that producers and studios do or at least they used to do a lot more to gauge what the show is doing to an audience hmm and then it's like, oh, no, nobody laughed there. Let's do some reshoots because we got to punch up those jokes, yada, yada, yada. OK, well, in the theater, I don't have a camera and I need the audience now to teach me what is working and what is not working. Hmm. And Danya, this is her first play on Broadway. Me, this is my first play on Broadway. We talked to a bunch of people and we said, you know what we need? We need Broadway money and an off-Broadway preview period. So it is a little bit untraditional how long our preview period is. We got six weeks of previews. And yes, on the first night when we started, there's a big gesture that happens at the end that didn't happen the first night, but you know what, it happened last night. And so every day we are building in the tweaks that are gonna get us to the locked version that yes, we have to lock it on September 12th when the show officially opens because then the press comes And they tell you what to think about it. (laughs) Because we know you people don't think for yourselves. Come on, I'm just kidding. Please think for yourselves. Come see the show. Come see the show in previews.
2: And so you're giving yourself some time, though, you know, without the pressure of rewrites to kind of like experience and fine tune this version of it. And then you're kind of. Well, that
1: also comes from that self-care. Yeah. And not only self-care, but also coming into this crazy experience with people that I've been working with since 2017. Mm -hmm. So I am not holding up the play anymore. We are manifesting this version. Like we're at the place now when we go into, because, you know, we have rehearsal. So now that we've opened, now that we're in previews is the way that we say it. uh, We only have four hours of rehearsal in the morning, usually from about one to five-ish. Yesterday I'm at rehearsal. We're running this line, da-da-da. We're running it again and again. It's It's not right. It's not right. It's not right. I figure out, oh shit, this is what we need to change. I'm walking back. To Danya and Justin at the sound booth, at the sound table, where Justin Ellington, our sound designer, is, and I hear him explaining to Danya the his idea for how to change this moment, and what he's saying is exactly what I was coming to tell them. Amazing, as the quote unquote author of this play. Right. Justin's been on the place in Chicago. Justin did Chicago. Justin did Amazon. Justin did Lincoln Center. Justin did. Broadway. So we are all feeling the play. I come in and I say, Oh shit, I've discovered this, 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 this. Two weeks later, okay, Justin is saying, Oh yeah, we got to tweak this one Mm -hmm. thing. And I'm like, Yeah, that was exactly what I was coming to.
2: It's beautiful. And do you experience that as like you're listening to the play? And the play is telling you what it needs? Is that is that like within you? Is that what listening to
1: the play? Yes. Yeah. We have all decided this play, because you know, theater, because of that interconnectedness and because it is different from a novel in that way, it requires so many people for us to put it to life. The play is like a Frankenstein, you know, mm-hmm. it, it is a monster. And we think our monster is beautiful and it's, its body is moving and working, you know, and I don't know, there's a lot of religious stuff happening in this play and my relationship, not only to prose, but my relationship also to my own spiritual uh, childhood has been so present in this process and so I keep thinking, I'm like, oh, every night we resurrect the body of the text. Yeah. Every night we resurrected anew, anew. And right now we are all resurrecting the same body. Thankfully, we all know exactly who who we've made, what Mm -hmm. we've made.
2: That's one of the collaborative lessons I've really learned from doing theater that, you know, like the thing you're all working on together, whatever, whether it's a play or a, I don't know, a PowerPoint presentation or whatever, right? It's like, it has right. its own life. It has its own yes. needs. It is not about your yes. ego. It's actually about this thing. Yes. And and it,
1: all we have to do is stay in the same room, hmm. stay on the same frequency and listen to the fucking play.
2: Right. And, and you know, and i get out of its way. Yeah, totally. 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 <sighs> and, and hardest I, thing to do. I wonder about those moments, though, because we, we've all had them, right? When, like, when something's not working, uh, identifying what the actual, you know, problem mm-hmm. is, like, like this moment in the play is, and uh, whatever the moment is, is it because? Uh, we actually need a new actor in that part, and that, or we need yes. we need to like really tweak that line reading. Is it that it needs to yes. be a new line of dialogue? Is it actually something really random, like the light is too bright? You know, h- right. how do you? It's it, figuring that out like an intuitive process for you, or, or how do you figure out like what things needs to change?
1: It's deeply intuitive, and I could, I mean, for any listener whose heart, mind, or psyche is open to a theophany or a sense of the divine or a sense of like the creative spirit as something that animates us. I would say that we are all the Passover Broadway creative team. We are experiencing something that for me at least is life-changing and divine. Hmm. I don't think this is gonna make sense, but we've developed among us a company mantra, which is just uh, that it comes in threes and we are beginning to build. Once you have a company mantra and you give people who are as creative and as tapped in and as dedicated and as brilliant as all of my creative team is, they know the play, they know the changes, they know my process. We're experiencing something incredibly Divine and
2: incredibly beautiful. You've worked on this production. Many of your collaborators have been with the show for a long time in in, in many different oh, yeah. versions. Uh, had you worked with any of them before, or was this your first time working with Danya, or your first time working with uh, John Michael Hill? Or
1: it was my first time working with John. Definitely, he got hired for Chicago because obviously he's a member of the Steppenwolf Company. It was not my first time working with Danya. Uh, my my sort of the short version of my collaboration with Danya is. The very first iteration of Passover was uh, Passover at uh, Cherry Lane Mentorship. Dania applied for that job and I gave it to someone else. Mm. But we're at the same agency. And so our our agent, uh, Di Glazer, was like, look, I wanna try to make this match happen. So we went to a developmental retreat for another play of mine called Flat Sam back in 2016. And we were like, look, nobody's producing this play but it is a complete play. Let's just work on it to find out if we like each other. And by the end, I was like, okay, this is the person I do want to collaborate with. So the next year at Cherry Lane Mentorship, she directed Nathan Youngerberg's play, East Side's Table, mm-hmm. which was also about uh, the deaths of three young black men. And I and so one of the big questions I have was like, okay, can this white woman direct the kind, my work? Right. So I've worked with her on Flat Sam, which is a less thorny racial play but it does still contain race it's an interracial relationship and then I see her brilliantly handle Nathan Youngerberg's play and I still go to Steppenwolf and I say yeah I want a black woman director and so I get a black woman director and three weeks before we go up that black woman director goes and gets a tv job Mm. and then I say who do I know that won't abandon me three weeks before Steppenwolf is getting started who will literally clear a schedule and be a tough fucking bitch. I got to call Danya hmm. and Danya told Seth gold, I can't assist you on Hamlet or whatever the fuck he was doing at New York theater workshop. Yeah. I got to go direct. I got to go to as over at Steppenwolf. And she's been my ride or die since
2: you have been with this play for a long time and, and made a, very large changes to it between the major productions of it, right? Like the, <laughs> ste- the yeah. Steppenwolf version and the LCT3 version are not the same play in the LCT3 version and um, the Broadway version are not the same play. What has driven that process for you in terms of wanting to make those the, the changes that you've made in each of those productions?
1: The moment in which I happened to be writing.
2: Mm.
1: So when I found out that Passover was going to Steppenwolf, it was the twilight of Obama's era. Mm-hmm. So at that point I was like, yeah, there might be an officer character, but I, you know, I don't think I even want to put that character in. I want it to be ending to be very Beckettian. in the Cherry Lane version, you know, Moses and Kitsch don't die. They, there's no Osifer character. It's just Mr. And they just hear sirens and the sirens are sort of like the placeholder that someone could always be coming, but like a doe, he never comes. And then everybody knows what the fuck happened next. Right. And it's like, uh, how am I supposed to give humans the same art object when the entire world? Like, I'm sitting here saying, like, uh, are we about to become fucking fascists? You know what I mean? Like, come on now. How am I going to give you, especially in a play this charged? I can't say the same old thing. And then that just kept happening. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we were ready with Steppenwolf the summer after he had been elected. We were ready with Lincoln Center during the midterm elections. And now this, this is the first breath of fresh air after that regime, which we kind of don't even talk about because we're still dealing with COVID. Right. So now it's like I had the situation where Matt Ross was like, hey, oh, my God, we're, we're starting to get vaccinated. You can go to Broadway. But because of the stupid self care that I'm committing to, I'm like, you know what? The one thing I do not want to do after a pandemic and a fucking miscarriage is talk about my play. That's a lynching. Right. And say like, oh, my Broadway debut, this play. And I don't regret the previous versions of the play. But okay, I told that story. Mm -hmm. And you know what happened? More black people died. So we're not going to do that no more. I'm not going to do that to myself anymore. I'm not going to do that to John Hill anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that to Namir anymore. I'm not going to do that to my creative team. If you want Broadway, if you're going to give me Broadway, I'm going to give you the play that I need now.
2: And so the ending no longer features one of the, the two men getting murdered, right? He gets, he gets shot and no. killed at the end of the play. Moses yeah. lives.
1: I was like, first of all, I don't want to work on that lynching play. Then I'm sitting there one day, and I literally say to myself, and then I call Danya, of course, and I say to her, I'm like, wait a minute, dramaturgy, dramaturgy, dramaturgy. In the play as it stands, Moses confronts Ossifer, and he is, becomes the vessel of this divine power that gives him the right to stop Ossifer's gun, his stick, and
2: his words. Right.
1: So how come 20 minutes later when this motherfucker comes up, he doesn't still have that same power? And Danya goes, oh shit. And I go, wow, we were so depressed because we were under that regime. Nobody, nobody, nobody could ask a simple dramaturgical question. Right. If Superman learns how to fly on Tuesday, that motherfucker can still fly on Wednesday. And then I was like, okay. It started with that feeling and it started with that loyalty to my own self care. And then my mind was able to ask the perfect question. And so then I bring my whole team together and I say, look, we can maybe go to Broadway. Is everybody available? Yes, yes, yes. Let's talk dramaturgy. We sat in the August Wilson theater. I did the same thing that Danya makes me always do. when we start process. I read the play all parts to the cat, to the whole creative team. And I said, I don't know what the new dialogue is going to be. I don't know what it's going to be. But we all know that when Mr. comes back at the end, Moses is still Moses. Mm -hmm. He's powerful now. Go build us a new set because I know the new set is going to be the promised land. I don't know what the dialogue is going to be, but this is the new story. Superman stays Superman. Okay, but let's build a new set. Let's go.
2: It's also interesting because it seems to me that part of what's going on during the, uh, the previous president and that moment is like, not only can you not ask the dramaturgical question, but it's like, can we actually imagine a different future? Like you just feel I, exactly so, that. Uh, yeah, you know, you feel so weighed down. It's like, what is the. Yes.
1: When I said before that, sometimes it feels like writing was like uh, method acting. What I was saying is that by writing the first version of that play, I am admitting to the fact that while I was teaching these young black boys and girls at BMCC from 2008 to 2016. I taught first as an adjunct, then as a full time adjunct at BMCC public speaking. I could not stop imagining these kids deaths. Yeah. That's fucked up. Totally. I don't want to read, you know, people are like, oh, why aren't you more in the news? Because I can't watch a video of a young black man being killed and then go teach young black men how to speak. While I'm also underpaid and be trying to be a playwright, whatever the fuck that is. Teaching five classes of public speaking at a public CUNY school where the class is supposed to be capped at 32. My classes were always up to 41 because I'm known as the cool teacher. For eight years, I'm doing this shit. Right. And then I'm supposed to, oh, follow the news of yet another black person being killed. And then I try to put it into my art. <laughs> I'm done. I don't want that energy anymore. If you want to produce the old play, if you want to watch the old play, if you need the old play, it's available.
2: There's two things that that story sort of unlocks to me that are really wild. One of them is just, you know, that creating the space to actually have the idea and to have a new Mm -hmm. idea and to do something Mm -hmm. interesting. Like Mm -hmm. so much of the creative process is actually just about like, how do you organize your life so you have that space? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And listen, the only way that I know how to do that successfully is to borrow from the lessons that I learned when I grew up in an evangelical cult in Los Angeles in Mm. the 80s 80s and 90s, which is to treat my relationship with myself as sacred. Mm. It comes first in the way that I was taught to treat my relationship with God, so much so that I think that my relationship with myself and my relationship with God are actually deeply intertwined. And so in order for me to fully be a steward of the life that I have been given, by whom I don't know, for how long I don't know, I need to prioritize my self-care. And my job needs to fit into that.
2: This has been such a great conversation. I learned so much from it. So thank you so much for doing this. And really, break a leg with the rest of the preview process. And the thank
1: opening. you. Thank you so much. Yes, we are going to finish this way. I promise. <laughs>
2: Raise your hand if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley
0: Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbett, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Isaac, I feel like I could go walk on coals now. Like Antoinette has amazing energy, and I loved hearing how seriously she takes her own well-being when she's figuring out her creative priorities. I also felt like I was eavesdropping on some real theatre shop talk, which I really enjoyed. So thank you for that conversation.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you for saying that. That's very kind.
0: So there are so many things I want to ask you about, but let me start with the way that Antoinette is using the Broadway preview process. As she put it, she felt that Passover needed Broadway money and an off-Broadway preview period. What did she mean by that? Is the way she's doing things very different from the norm?
2: Uh, Yes and no. I mean, previews are for every production where the rubber really hits the road. Uh, A production often comes together or completely falls apart during the preview (laughs) period. And people will make very intense changes. To just give one example, I worked on an off-Broadway musical as an assistant, and uh, the creative team were making huge changes to the show. They were changing songs. They were cutting songs. They were putting new songs in. They were redoing choreography. But uh, in previews, you have a shortened rehearsal time during the day and then you perform at night. And they didn't have enough time during any one rehearsal to make all the changes. So for about four days, the actors were rehearsing a new version of the show during the day and then performing the old version of the show at night. Right. So it's like I I actually don't even know how they did it. But anyway, um, off Broadway and nonprofit theaters tend to have longer preview times at Playwrights Horizons for example the preview period is often as long as the rehearsal period that does not happen as often for Broadway unless it's a musical and actually traditionally musicals would start out of town mm-hmm. and do runs out of town and make changes on the road but what will happen now is you'll have a shorter preview process of a couple or few weeks particularly if it's a production that's been mounted somewhere else and then away you go and there are shows that actually close during their previews because of bad ticket sales and they never open in the first place so what she's talking about doing is having a, a preview process that is a little bit longer where people are really open to the fact that there might be really big changes made to the show night to night uh, before it gets on its feet in front of the press.
0: Wow. Antoinette spoke really bracingly about recognizing the need to prioritize her mental health and the changes she made to do that, including making changes to pass over pretty late in the game. And that feels extra ballsy because Passover is her Broadway debut. Am I right in thinking that the Broadway designation still really matters? I mean, this is a big moment in her career, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. Broadway is still very important. I mean, we like to be kind of dismissive of it because it's it's the commercial theater, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and because it, we think of it as sort of big musicals that run forever and all the audiences from out of town, and and you know, like it doesn't matter artistically or whatever. And and yeah. there's a level on which. That's true, but that's not the whole story. Being on Broadway is still a very big deal. And particularly when you put a new play on Broadway, and particularly one of the larger nonprofits is involved, it's a way to signal this is a writer who is important. This is a writer and a work that we believe is worth the culture investing in. And Mm -hmm. as you can see by the fact that we're interviewing her, The Times has interviewed her, you know, it draws in a lot of attention. And because it draws in all that attention, it is also an incredibly fraught time. I mean, no one wants to put a play on Broadway and have it be universally panned. That does not feel good, you know, and that's not not great. But, you know, so it is a vulnerable moment. It's a moment of real exposure.
0: So over the course of making episodes of this show, you and I have had many conversations about influence.
2: Talking about influence is my love language, (laughs) Jim.
0: Good. Well, we've we've been doing that. Uh, I was really struck by Antoinette's idea of trying to resist thinking about Samuel Beckett, really yelling at the guy to get out of her head because she didn't think that that was what she should be writing about or working on. And then just finally accepting that that was what her creative mind was really vibing on. It sounded like you've had that experience, too.
2: Oh, yeah, totally. And, and you know, in part because this connects to the voicemail we'll be talking about later, mm-hmm. you can get really hung up on like, oh, I don't want to look at this thing because it might influence me or that's not the influence I want or whatever. But, yeah. you know. Sometimes your mind is just telling you something you don't want to hear, but you need (laughs) to hear it anyway. When I was in graduate school, I really didn't want to write my thesis or write at all about this very recent uh, difficult time for my family uh, Mm. and how it connected to a very difficult time in my childhood. But every time I sat down to write anything for any prompt that my professors were giving me, stuff about that just kept coming out. So eventually I was like, God damn it. (laughs) Okay, brain, fine. I will fucking write this now. Uh, And that was the next couple years of my life. Um, So much of creativity exists beyond our conscious mind and is not subject to conscious control. What we can do is build the space for that stuff, nurture it and listen to it and use it. You know, like we have to control what we can, but we also have to be open to the parts that we can't control and and let them tell us some shit.
0: (laughs) For real. I absolutely loved Antoinette's description of the ideas and the projects that she's working on being like a series of pots in the storeroom of her mind. The creative process for her involves bringing together some ingredients, getting the pot working. Some ingredients might be marinating. Sometimes things are on a slow cook. Sometimes things are bubbling. That is a fantastic image.
2: Yeah, it's great. I mean, your mind is always working on something, right? Yeah. And, and sometimes the thing you're working on, like what it actually needs, you think what it needs is for you to bang your head against the brick wall some more. <laughs> but what it actually needs is just some time to simmer away. Right. Just like yeah. like let it simmer. The watch pot never boils. Right. Mm. Uh, and that is very hard to let yourself do because capitalism yeah. forces deadlines on us. Yeah. It, it forces pressure on us. It makes us think about everything we do is some potential product. Mm. But sometimes you just got to set it down, put it in the drawer and walk away. You know, I ask guests on this show about abandoned projects a lot. I I asked her about it. But the truth Mm -hmm. is that an abandoned project is just something that becomes part of your future work. It doesn't exist in that form. But in, in some ways, so long as you are doing something creative, none of that time is ever really wasted.
0: Yeah. Another thing that she said that really struck me was her very frank statement that in addition to ideas, creative people need discipline and they need hope specifically hope that the work that they put out will be well received. Mm -hmm. Because to put it in a much blander way than she did, not only is the world a profoundly unjust place, but the world of theatre is especially hard to break into because a playwright has to get buy-in. They have to get funding. They have to get a theatre. They have to get a team. And only a small number of gatekeepers really have the ability to make that happen. And I'm assuming now, but I'm thinking that those people are typically rich and probably mostly white.
2: You got it in one, June. Yes. The theater in America, which was founded in part to be an engine of democracy itself, a way of connecting us with one another beyond just the raw and crass dictates of the commercial world. It has increasingly become even more of a bauble of the elite. Mm -hmm. And the people funding it come from that elite. Mm -hmm. And that poses many, many challenges that are way too numerous to get into. But there has always been people pushing back on that. But some of those funders are pushing back on that. Mm -hmm. Some of the people in those nonprofits are pushing back on that. The artists push back on it. And there's a lot of people out there who are trying to make theater and the institutions that make those kinds of decisions walk the, you know, the noble virtuous stuff that they're so good at talking about when <laughs> they're raising money. And those yeah. efforts have greatly increased during the pandemic. And ah. I think you're starting to see some of that payoff in the programming decisions over the next couple of years. And my hope is that they only gather steam from here.
0: Yeah. Let's help. Okay. Isaac, we have one of our favorite things. We have a listener question.
2: Drum roll, please.
0: And appropriately enough. It's from a theatre person. Let's hear it. Hi, working friends. My name is Kate Smith and I'm a theatre director,
1: actor and creator that works uh, primarily in Ottawa in Canada. Um, I love your show and listening to it during the pandemic has made me feel less alone because I usually work collaboratively and I've been kept apart from all of my colleagues for all this time. Um, A question I have for you and for the other creatives that tune in is... When I have an idea for a show, I sit about writing it and securing funding, workshopping it, assembling my team and so on, but I tend not to see if anyone else has done something similar first. Do other creatives do internet sleuthing and digging before being swept away by their next big project? Or like me, do they assume it will be unique regardless <laughs> because it's my voice uh, and my thoughts? Do um, I guess I'm resisting comparison and distraction in a way, but. Am I crazy for not creeping on my play's content
0: first? Thanks. So, Isaac, what do you think? Well, first of all,
2: I just want to say to Kate, thank you so much for your kind words about the show. Hearing from our listeners makes me feel less alone. (laughs) So, So thank you very, very much. Now, to your actual question, which is a wonderful one. You asked if we do this in in our work, and I'm actually professionally required to see what else is out there about a subject I want to write about. If I'm writing a book, you know, when you write a nonfiction book and you're trying to sell it, you have to write a proposal. And one of the things you have to do in that proposal is tell the potential editor what else is out there on the subject and how your own book fits into that existing body of work and would differentiate itself from it. So you actually have to have some idea about that before you start writing a sentence of the book itself. And when I, pitch to slate or anywhere else i usually have to talk about how the thing i want to write will intervene in an existing conversation but to the other half of your question i don't think there's anything wrong with the way you're going about it if it works for you but i want to suggest just as an experiment that the next time you have an idea that you're excited about take some time to Google what else might be out there that might be similar. You know, what we call comps. Maybe you even want to read those plays or novels or watch those films as part of your research. You might discover that this is a hugely discouraging exercise that crushes your creativity and makes you feel like you never do anything original and you never (laughs) want to do it again. That's fine. Or you might discover that you learn more about the material and how the culture treats it and you find interesting things that you want to respond to and it's inspiring and generative and gives you new ideas. But I Either way, you'll have learned something new about what you need for your process. And since you don't seem to have any problems coming up with ideas, <laughs> if one has to be sacrificed to figure this out, I don't think it's too much of a loss. What do you think, June? <laughs>
0: yeah. I... I feel that I don't want to ask Kate to change her habits because it was clear from her voice that her process is, as you say, very generative. And it sounds like it's really fun for her. Like she seems to have a great time when she's like going off on that on that search and and just like letting the ideas flow. Um, Sounds like it's a wave of excitement. So I don't want to spoil that. Uh, In journalism, the first thing we do is look to see what else has been published on a topic. And, you know, just because something has been written, that doesn't necessarily mean that a new idea uh, is a dead end. There might still be room for a new approach or a different focus or deeper thinking. It might be doable, but it's definitely something that you factor in. And it does mean, unfortunately, that a lot of great ideas never become pieces because the topic feels overexposed. That said, you know, Kate being a theater professional, I'm pretty sure would know about anything that was big enough to be an absolute project killer.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. Can, can I ask June, you know, yes. Kate has this thing that she says, though, that I do think is worth highlighting. And I was wondering what you think about, which is mm. like, isn't a project inherently on some level different because it flows from the individual who's writing about it and well, it flows that, from their perspective and background?
0: yeah. I think that's absolutely right. On the other hand, we're not really talking about the work itself. We're talking about that green light, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if we were doing things because we love them, well, who cares what else is out there? But there's, I think we all, and again, you know, we we say it almost every show, capitalism means that, you know, art is not pure. Uh, You know, it's very hard to get someone to read the third piece on a subject. right? Well, maybe the third is okay, but the 15th, no. Uh, and so it, it, that's, it, it's actually the, the capitalist side of it. You have to really be able to show why this is very different from something you're already familiar with because we're all searching for something new. And I actually don't think that's unreasonable. I don't want, my time is limited. I don't want to uh, kind of, I don't want to just keep seeing the same thing over and over. Is that unreasonable?
2: No, I I think that's reasonable, although, you know, obviously, as someone who's on the writing side, not the editing side, I do wish I could send a pitch that was just like, hey, Forrest Wickman, I want to write about this, and I don't, it's just going to be me, me, the pitch is it's me, and he'll be like, yes, of course, that's perfect, you know, who who doesn't want that, Uh, no, but more seriously, you know, When it comes to theater and stuff like that, you know, you'll usually find your original spin to put on something. And so, you know, I don't think you should be afraid of trying to see what else is out there. Yeah. There are so many different plays that are some version of Oedipus. There are so <laughs> many different plays that are like four rich people have a dinner oh date God. that goes awry in their Manhattan apartment. You know, there's like, yeah, se- yeah. you know, like like there are certain durable structures that we see over and over and over again. And so I, I, I think that there's usually room for another version of a similar story in the theater world, which has different needs and incentives than you know magazine or, or website publishing
0: yeah that's a very good point thanks for sending us your question Kate. please let us know how it goes and listeners send us more questions we love them
2: Well, we hope you have enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And now, you know what we're going to do, June? The last Uh. Slate Plus membership Uh. pitch of the day. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, full access to all the articles on Slate.com, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Danny M. Lavery's Big Mood, Little Mood, But I also hope you might like to support the work we do here on Working. It's only one dollar for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus.
0: Thank you to Antoinette Chinoye-Wandu for being our guest this week. And as always, enormous thanks to our wonderful producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Isaac's conversation with Cristobal Tapia de Ver, who composed the music for White Lotus. Until then, get back to work.